0: Hi, it's amy siskin of the weekly list and author of the book the list and welcome to episode six of the weekly list podcast which accompanies week 86 on the weekly list website theweeklylist.org and corresponds to the week ended july 7th 2018. welcome So we're gonna spend time this week talking about the migrant crisis and our southern border and the atrocities being committed there and around the country by the Trump regime against these migrant families. But before we get to that, I wanna talk about three themes this week that caught my attention. The first played out over the week, and again, drawing attention to the fact that this was a holiday week and a lot of our media was on limited staff and many people were away. This played out starting on Monday when CNN reported that Trump is planning a one-on-one meeting with Putin at the start of their July 16th summit in Helsinki before aides joined the first formal meeting. So that will be without any ears, without any media, without any recording, one-on-one between Trump and Putin. Then on Tuesday, it was reported that the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee, important to say Republican-led, released a report backing the intelligence community's assessment that Russia interfered in the 2000 election to aid Trump. The nuance and the importance there, first of all, Trump has not even acknowledged Russian interference. The House Intelligence Committee, which has been highly dysfunctional, admitted there was Russian meddling, but they wouldn't tie that into the fact that they were meddling for Trump. The Senate goes one step further by confirming that Russia did interfere specifically to aid Trump. The report describes activities that goes far beyond the intelligence community's initial January 2017 findings and says Russia is continuing its efforts to undermine U.S. democracy. Bookmark that. The report also backed the intelligence findings that Russian intelligence services use digital operations to target both major political parties, as well as think tanks and lobby groups in order to influence the US policy. So again, that's a Republican-led committee. It came out July 3rd, the day before the holiday, didn't get a whole lot of attention or, or coverage. But then we learned that there was a delegation that went to Moscow and on July 4th of all days, independence day was meeting with their Russian counterparts. This included seven Republican senators and one member of the house, all Republicans. The meetings were closed doors. No Democrats were invited and the media was not giving, given access. That is the U S media. The pictures that we have and the picture that you see on the website this week is from TASS, which is state-run Russian media. And Russia was able to attend these meetings and have uh, opportunities to take photos. The senators struck a, quote, conciliatory tone. Senator Shelby told Duma speaker Volodin, quote, I'm not here today to accuse Russia of this or that or so forth. I'm saying that we should all strive for a better relationship. Again, this is basically ours because of the time difference after Senator Burr had come out with findings that Russia interfered to help Putin and is still working to interfere in our elections. Among the Russian attendees, here's some names you'll remember from the weekly list, Kislyak, whose conversations with Michael Flynn led to Flynn's firing, uh, Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov, those two were both in the Oval Office with Trump as well. The visit represents the most significant congressional visit to Russia in over a decade. Amazing. Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Konstantina Kosachev raised Russia's grievances about U.S. sanctions and seizure of Russian diplomatic properties. He's also, coincidentally, on the U.N on the U.S. sanctions list, which was imposed in April. While some GOP senators had hoped to meet with Putin during the trip, a spokesperson said Putin had, quote, no time for the visitors. Kostachev, who I just mentioned, is under sanctions, later told Russian state TV the GOP lawmakers visit was a concession. So that all happened this week. And then to kind of Put it um, all into perspective, on Friday, Senator Ron Johnson, who was one of the attendees, um, told Sirius Radio's show The Big Picture that it was time to evaluate whether to lift sanctions imposed on Russia over its annexation of Crimea. Shocking. Uh, John Bolton said something similar last Sunday on Meet the Press, where he also commented that that possibly could be on the table. And Bolton, as we know, is a huge hawk on Russia. But now all the decisions seem to be being made by one person. Also of interest, on Wednesday, it was revealed that there was another um, poisoning in London. The London Metropolitan Police said two people were found unconscious, unconscious in Amesbury, Wilshire, on Saturday. And they were exposed to the nerve agent Novichok, the same used in the other nerve agent attack that happened in the UK a few months ago. The UK Home Secretary accused Russia of using Britain as a dumping ground for poison. And of course, Russia denied it and said it was merely speculation. So just think about how our conciliatory tone towards Russia may be enabling them to act out and when we're abandoning some of our closest allies, a repeated theme that we've seen during the weeks. Another important thing this week was the changing face of America. Uh, We're gonna talk more about specifically what's happening at our southern border, but here's just some broad brushstrokes worth worth knowing. First, Pew Research reported for the first time, the U.S. resettled fewer refugees than the rest of the world in 2017, taking in just 33,000, the lowest level, since the year following September 11th, when the U.S. resettled about 97,000. On Monday, WNYC reported Trump's United States Citizen and Immigration Services Group is creating a new denaturalization task force to examine bad bad naturalization cases. The group expects to hire dozens of lawyers and immigration officers in the coming weeks to find U.S. citizens they say were not properly naturalized, revoke their citizenship and deport them. You can guess who they'll be targeting, people that are black and brown. AP reported that the U.S. Army quietly and abruptly discharged dozens of reservists, reservists and recruits who enlisted in the military with a promised path to citizenship. The total number of discharges is not yet known. Immigrants have served in the US Army since 1775, including Alexander Hamilton, there we go. More than 5,000 immigrants were recruited into the program in 2016 and an estimated 10,000 are currently serving. Another important story, US refugees resettlements Is on pace to remain historically low in 2018, as the Trump regime lowered the refugee ceiling for fiscal 2018 to 45,000 refugees, the lowest cap since the Refugee Act was adopted by Congress. Trump also said, "This is a continuing pattern that he's been, you know, week after week citing." "Quote: You get rid of ICE, you're going to have a country that is going to be afraid to walk out of your house." They go to Long Island, they actually liberate towns. This is his new theme, that every migrant that comes into our country is an aspiring MS-13 agent. He continued this week with his infests, invades, and you know, again, trying to make these people into animals and future gang members. And then we do treat them like animals and that seems to then be okay because of Trump's rhetoric. And speaking of rhetoric, this week was particularly alarming in the way Trump ramped up his rhetoric. In addition to his comments about MS-13, which is basically his comments on migrants, Trump also threatened critics of his on a Fox Business Network interview, saying, quote, I hope the other side realizes that they better just take it easy. Trump supporter Alex Jones called on his show that the left was going to have a civil war on July 4th, which became a joke on Twitter with everybody showing their picnic goods and how they were planning for the civil war. But this is the ramped up rhetoric. Um, Tucker Carlson later in the week said that the left was planning a coup. This is the tone and it's coming from the top. Um, Trump, who again, was maybe, you know, or we don't know exactly what was in the mind of this man in the Capital Gazette shooting. Uh, But on Sunday, the staff of the Capital Gazette released um, a, a a thank you note for everyone who supported them and called out Trump without naming him, saying, quote, we won't forget being called the enemy of the people. On Monday, the Baltimore Sun reported Trump declined a request from the Annapolis mayor to lower the American flag in honor of the people killed. After that was widely reported, and Trump was criticized on Tuesday, they reversed that, and Sarah Sanders called Buckley, the mayor, in the morning to say the White House had issued a proclamation ordering flags to be lowered nationwide until sunset Tuesday. But that didn't stop Trump. On Tuesday, he escalated his rhetoric with his one of his favorite targets, Maxine Waters, referring to her as, quote, crazy Maxine Waters and saying she is, quote, one of the most corrupt people in politics. He also continued his attacks of ICE, excuse me, support for ICE and attacks on MS-13 gangs, um, saying that ICE was the ones that would clean the infestation of MS-13 gangs. He also renewed his calls on Thursday for deporting migrants without due process, tweeting, quote, they must be told to leave without our country being forced to endure a long and costly trial. And he tweeted, quote, tell the people in capital letters out. Then they must leave just as they would if they were standing on your front lawn. So, again, treaty is... This week, um, really kind of bizarrely ramped up the rhetoric. I want to call attention to a um, rally that he did this week in Montana, um, which, in the realm of bizarre, and um, there are many, just really caught my attention. Trump has been doing more and more of these rallies, but some of the stuff that went on um, at this particular rally, he's really a bit unhinged, even more so than before. And you can sort of feel. The mood of our country shifting, the idea of civil wars, the idea of you know you, these people better cool it. Trump used the word anarchy several times this week as well, um, setting up this false narrative that it's the left that is you know doing these things that are un-American and anarchy and and so on. But on this rally in Montana, I want to just talk about some of the things that he said on Thursday. Uh, and again, this is one week after the shooting at the Capitol Gazette, Trump said of the media in Montana, quote, fake news, bad people, quote, they're so damn dishonest and quote, these are really bad people. He also said he would donate 1 million if he could test Senator Elizabeth Warren, who he called the fake Pocahontist for Native American heritage, adding, quote, but we will have to do it gently because we're in the Me Too generation. Interesting strategy by Trump. And it was interesting listening to the media trying to explain how this was a a tactic as opposed to just being bizarre, crazy behavior. This week, a poll that came out by the Washington Post found that Trump's approval is 42%, but his approval with women is only 32%. He's lost even white women, Um, and his approval with men is 54%, but a huge gender gap. He also, at his Montana rally, to chance of lock her up, said Hillary Clinton gets special treatment under the Justice Department. Sorry, sorry, sorry. She also attacked, of all people, George H.W. Bush after attacking McCain at a rally last week, saying his slogan, about a thousand points of light. What does it mean? I don't know one thing. Make America great again. We understand. That upset a lot of Republicans, yet they don't seem to be so upset with all the other things he does only when they you know, do one specific attack on George Herbert Walker, who's 92 years old and not in good health. On his way to the rally, when asked about allegations that Representative Jim Jordan had overlooked sexual abuse during his time as a wrestling coach at Ohio State University. Trump said, quote, I don't believe them at all. I believe him, just like he believed all the other assaulters uh, or people that have been silent um, on sexual assault. So why was Trump acting so crazy on Thursday? Well, I have a theory, and that is things are continuing. We talked about the Russia investigation heating up last week. It continued to heat up this week. And that is my theory as to why Trump is becoming unhinged. Um, And we know already all the different people that are cooperating, but we've all been keeping an eye on Michael Cohen, who is Trump's longtime lawyer and fixer and would have endless amounts of information. Um, relating to ongoing investigations, but also on, uh, related to one thing that I've thought could take Trump down, which is potential criminal activity related to silencing women and threatening women. Uh, Stephanie Clifford, Karen McDougall, Elliot Brody's mistress, and so on. But on Monday, George Stephanopoulos reported that he had a 45-minute interview with Michael Cohen he said that Cohen said, quote, my wife, my daughter, and my son have my first loyalty and always will. I put family and country first, not Trump. So that's a whole different tone. On Wednesday, again, which was Independence Day, July 4th, Cohen scrubbed mention of Trump from his Twitter bio and changed his Twitter header photo, deleting one that showed him standing behind a Trump campaign podium. On Thursday, Cohen hired Lanny Davis, it's a name you'll remember. He was the attorney and PR man for Bill Clinton um, during the scandals of the 1990s. He was also a surrogate for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. So those kind of hints that Cohen could cooperate got a lot of attention this week, including, I'm sure, Behind closed doors with Trump, who became an increasingly unhinged this week. Other news was related to AP reporting that Konstantin Kim, Kim, Kilimnik, who uh, has been working with um, Manafort now for over a decade. Um, that there are internal memos and business records that AP obtained that show as far back as 2004 that the two were plotting to pitch clients um, like Russia to be able to impact elections in the Ukraine, possibly the U.S. Um, they also pitched a name that you'll be familiar with, Der Paska, uh, who we reported last week, made a $10 million loan to Manafort that had been previously undisclosed and had been in contact with the two for over a decade. On Monday, McClatchy reported that Mueller's team likely got access to the NRA tax returns and will be able to see who the individuals are that financed $21 million of donations to Trump that were not previously made public. On Thursday, Bloomberg reported that Mueller is ramping up with adding more prosecutors to help with new legal battles as the investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election continues to expand. Instead of adding to his staff, Mueller is making use of prosecutors from U.S. attorneys' offices and from the Justice Department headquarters, as well as FBI agents, and may hand off more cases as he did with Cohen. Cohen. On Friday, um, new newly released court documents showed Manafort is being kept in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day ahead of his trial, which bookmarked this starts July 25th. Seems like forever ago, but now we're going to start to see that trial happening. And then out of nowhere, Rudy Giuliani, who we spoke about last week, had kind of disappeared after in the Senate hearing. Uh, FBI Director Ray said he it could be possible that a lawyer for Trump could be uh, committing obstruction of justice by speaking out publicly like, publicly, and then Rudy kind of disappeared. He was back at the end of this week to say it was doubtful that Trump will do an interview with Mueller unless Mueller shows them the evidence of criminal uh, charges against Trump, which obviously Mueller's not going to do, and I think they're feeling better with the Supreme Co- Court possibly shifting. Um, that they'll be able to protect Trump. So we'll keep an eye out on that. The Trump regime has also been shifting this week. Um, and this was, and you know, when we talk about not normal and historical differences, um, the New Yorker reported that uh, Trump has a record-setting amount of turnover in his regime. This week, we saw Scott Perr re- resign. We're going to talk more about that. But including that, as of the end, without even, excuse me, excluding Pruitt, as of the end of June, 61% of top level advisors in the Trump regime have turned. To put that into some perspective, at the same point in time in the Obama administration, turnover was 14%. And for George W. Bush, it was just 5%. With Pruitt's departure, Trump's cabinet has the fastest turnover rate of any administration in a hundred plus years. Turnover is also alarming at lower levels where positions that are held by second and third wave aides are also being vacated. Here's another example of that. On Tuesday, Scott Schools, a top aide to Rod Rosenstein resigned. Schools was a senior official and played a critical role in the strategic counselor and was a strategic counselor on institutional norms and ethics. His exit follows Rachel Brand, who is number three in the uh, attorney general's office. Then on Thursday, Trump hired Bill Shine, and he was named White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Communications, where he will report directly to Trump and oversee both the press and communications teams. Shine, by the way, is a close friend of Hannity, John Hannity, who has a direct end to Trump. And we know that their shows, um, in particular his show, is very sapotico with what Trump is doing. The three of them purportedly played golf together before this hiring took place. The appointment of Shine, who was pushed out of Fox News of all places, I mean, if you get pushed out of Fox News over sexual mishand- over mishandling of sexual harassment uh, scandals, you know you're not doing so well. Um, But this met protests um, with both advocates and even some conservatives. So those are some changes in the Trump regime. But it continues to be largely unstaffed. And the theme that we've talked about with all these vacancies, one person is making all the decisions in our country. We're going to talk about trade. We're going to talk about foreign policy. There's one person in charge and making decisions, and increasingly Trump is bringing in people that are sycophants and anybody left, which are not many, who disagree with him or stand up to him, are shown the door. So now I want to talk about and spend some time what's happening in our southern border, which is so disturbing. And after the media coverage started and has been exposing what's happening, it seems things are getting worse and worse. Last Sunday, the New York Times reported that sponsors of migrant children trying to reunite the children with their parents face considerable red tape and must pay for the children's flights to reunite them with their parents. After the Trump regime ripped them away, now they're asking these foster parents to pay for the the flights to reunite them. In an important ruling on Monday, um, a case brought by the ACLU, a U.S. district court in the District of Columbia blocked the systemic, arbitrary detention of migrants who show credible evidence that they were fleeing persecution in their home countries. The lawsuit noted that 1,000 asylum seekers had been denied parole in five ICE districts. Before Trump took office, more than 9 out of 10 asylum seekers were granted parole. The judge ordered the government to conduct individualized reviews to determine whether a person is a flight risk, poses a national security threat, or is danger to the community before denying parole, which is what they're doing now. So that was an important ruling, and thank you to the ACLU. Don't forget to support the organizations doing the work alongside the resistance. Bloomberg reported, and these are just some of the stories that are dripping out day after day on a 15-year-old girl who said after fleeing El Salvador and being forcibly separated from her mother was crammed into a windowless room with 60 other girls. The room was divided by wire fencing into three cages, each holding 20 separated girls, some as young as three years old. She said she was deprived of proper sleep or food for three days and that the place was freezing grassroots grassroots leadership a human rights organization postered letters from immigration detention centers and these were heartbreaking um, repeating this theme that we started talking about early, uh, in the beginning of the podcast about trump you know uh, treating these people and using language as if they're animals um, and putting them in cages One woman in these letters called the facility La Piera, which is translated the kennel because of the chain leak cages she and others were held in. She said for eight days after she was captured, she was not allowed to bathe or brush her teeth. She and other women slept on the floor under aluminum paper blankets and said they were treated like, quote, animals. Others describe the anguish of being separated from their children. One woman wrote, quote, from then on, I didn't know anything more about my children. They told us our kids would be adopted by other people. I mean, can you imagine this as uh, you've been fleeing persecution so bad that you want to come to our country despite what is happening in our country you're denied food. You're denied proper shelter. You're put in cages, and you're going, you're told your children are going to be adopted by other people. I mean, the level of cruelty is just incredible. And you know, this was this story that we all knew was going to drop eventually. Um, on Wednesday, the New York Times reported that Trump's inauguration fund collected five hundred thousand from two private prison companies, GEO Group. And Core Civic, which are involved in housing detained migrant families. Like, who saw that coming? Like, everybody saw that coming. Further, Defense Secretary Mattis, Mattis sits on a board of a housing contractor who has gotten um, business from this. And Betsy DeVos has provided funds to one of the groups. Some contractors employ GOP lobbyists with ties to Trump. So we kind of knew that somebody would be cashing in and we kind of knew, you know, just like Puerto Rico with Zinke's friend, Whitefish Energy, who got the $300 million contract in Puerto Rico, even though they had two employees and we still don't hear about that, we knew that the Trump regime would be cashing in with this cruelty. On Thursday, a federal judge in California, this was another important ruling, rejected the Trump regime's challenge to block three of the state's sanctuary laws. Um, the ruling allows California to keep in place its most significant legislative measures aimed at countering Trump's crackdown on illegal immigrants. If you want more detail on that, you can read about it at the weekly list. Um, and then this happened at, as we closed out the week, starting Thursday, we're approaching, as we said last week, there was a 14 day limit put in place by the court in San Diego for starting to reunite families. For children under five, they needed to be reunited within 14 days, which is next Tuesday, July 14th. So starting on Thursday, suddenly Health and Human Services Secretary Azar said, remember last week we were mystified that the number had gone from 2053 down to 2047, they had only been able to place six migrant children in all of the the entire week 85. Well, this week, forget that number completely because it turns out Azar said, no, it's closer to 3000 migrant children are in custody after after crossing the Southern border. You know, basically I, I think the answer is we just don't know and they're just not being honest with us. Uh, or they might not know themselves. Of the roughly 3,000 migrant children still in federal custody, about 100 are under the age of five. And so those are impacted by this ruling we're going to talk more about. Azar said the regime is planning to use DNA to reunite families in order to meet the deadline of the San Diego ruling. That, of course, led to a lot of pushback from advocates Uh, raising concerns about how that DNA collected by migrants would be used in the future. On Thursday, the New York Times reported that according to two Department of Homeland Security officials, records linking migrant children to their parents have disappeared or been destroyed. Part of it is the Office of Refugee Settlement that had put together procedures such as identification bracelets and registration numbers Those policies were never implemented because Border Patrol has the children for the first 72 hours. Then on Thursday, PBS reported on some more disturbing stories. These were motions that were filed as part of the Democrat um, attorney generals in 17 states and D.C. suing um, against the Trump regime's policies. Um, And as part of that, there were 900 pages of declarations and personal testimony from parents, children, and other family members. And I have to tell you folks, there's a link to find this if you want to read these stories. Um, It's stories like this that is the person recording it all. I I find it terribly difficult to read these things. I highlighted a few of the stories in the weekly list. Um, One is Olivia Caceres, who was separated from her one-year-old son in November. And she wrote, quote, my son is not the same since we were reunited, adding, when I took off his clothes, he was full of dirt and lice. It seemed like they had not bathed him in 85 days. I mean, can you imagine this is a baby, a 14 month year old who had lice and was not cleaned. And when he was reunited with his mother. Uh, An investigator for the Washington Attorney General um, wrote in in one of the um, declarations and testimonies that the guards would wake up all the girls at 4 a.m. to count them by kicking on their mats. Other stories, again, were equally excruciating. So those stories are, you know, again, the stuff is all just starting to come out. Um, You know, and then Thursday, Azar had said that the Trump regime will comply with the deadline of the court, even though he criticized the judge's timetable as extreme. Um, By Friday, uh, you know, this was filed late Thursday by by Azar's group, uh, the Trump regime said it will not be able to meet the judge's deadline. So, you know, same day, shift around. Um, and that when they got into court, they said that they cannot locate 38 out of the 101 migrant parents. They said 19 were released from custody and their whereabouts are unknown. And another 19 have been deported. The judge has given the, um, the attorneys for the Trump regime until Monday at 10 to put together a master list of these children. Um, and again, what is becoming very clear is they just separated families. They didn't keep good records. They had no real plans to ever reunite these families or not enough care about humanity of separating them and of threatening parents that we're going to take away your kids or giving them the false choice. You either uh, stop seeking asylum or we're never going to give you your children back. Those are the stories we're reading about week after week. So we'll be following what happens in the San Diego court on Monday for next week's list. Away from the rights being taken away um, and and our fading democracy, uh, just some other rights that were under attack this week. Um, Last week, the Kentucky Republicans were turned down by the government um, that uh, the state had tried to impose a work requirement for Medicaid. So this week, the Republican governor, Matt Bevan, in reaction to that ruling, canceled dental and vision benefits for almost 500,000 people on Medicaid in his state. So just the everyday cruelty. On Tuesday, Trump's Department of Education rescinded an Obama-era guideline that encouraged the use of race to promote diversity, directing schools and colleges to adopt race-neutral admissions standards. The regime instead instead reposted a W. Bush administration document on the website. Stuff gets taken down, but it also comes back up if it's stuff they want us to see that strongly encouraged the use of word race-neutral on the Department of Education's website. Also, on Tuesday, Sessions withdrew 24 Justice Department guideline documents, most but not all dating back to Obama's administration, including materials about affirmative actions and rights of refugees. So basically what we're seeing is the Supreme Court is set to shift. Um, Trump and his regime and Sessions, who we know is got very, um, has been trying to destroy civil rights very methodically since he took office or took his post, Um, feeling even more emboldened now to turn back affirmative action. Uh, Another category I wanna talk about is everyday racism. We've been mentioning these in the podcast, these stories that people's hatred of others that has been legitimized by Trump and his constant attack of people of color now, what what is happening in our country, what I call everyday racism. Washington Post reported on a white woman in Maple Heights, Ohio, who called the police on a 12-year-old black boy who was mowing her neighbor's lawn after he slightly crossed onto her property. On Tuesday, this is a classic, a woman called the police on Representative Janelle Bynum, a black Oregon state representative running for re-election, while she was going door to door campaigning and using her cell phone. On Wednesday, the daily news reported that the principal at the university preparatory, preparatory charter school for young men in Rochester, New York, refused to allow that school's first black valedictorian to give a speech at the graduation ceremonies. Instead, Rochester Mayor Lovely Warren invited the young man who had served as an intern to her previously to give the speech at City Hall. Warren said, quote, I think it was personal between Jason and the principal. On July 4th, a white man in North Carolina asked a black woman who was swimming in a community pool for her ID and then called the police. After the video of the incident went viral, he was fired from his job at Sunoco. On Friday, Larry Lappin, a white man in Petaluma, California, apologized after a video of him cursing a neighbor on July 4th for playing Spanish language music went viral. He said he had been drinking too much. Following last week's list, when we talked about um, the Anti-Deformation League, reporting record hate crimes um, on college campuses, this week, the NAACP issued a new study showing a continued rise in hate crimes to, quote, the highest level in a decade, and said there is a direct relationship between the rise and, quote, Trump's xenophobic rhetoric and racist policies. The report also found racially motivated crimes comprised nearly 60 percent overall hate crimes. And the report found that quote anti-black, anti-semitic, anti-gay, and anti-latino were the most common types of hate crimes. So it comes from the top, you know, when your language coming from the man who is supposedly running our country is racist, it emboldens all of everybody else to treat people that are not white as animals and lesser than and infesting and invading our country. So uh, you know we talked earlier in the podcast about Trump seizing control and and um, his regime being very unstaffed. I want to talk about some of the ways that that's impacting what we do as a country as one man makes our decisions um, first, I want to talk about trade and our economy, which as I mentioned last week, Trump has start stopped talking about his wonderful stock market, the beloved stock market, which is now sliding and going sideways um, as everyone braces for the reality of these trade wars that they thought he was just talking, but now it's actually starting to come to fruition. On Sunday, in an interview with Fox Business's Maria Bartiromo, Trump said he would not move forward on the next NAFTA deal with Mexico and Canada until after the midterms. Trump also slammed our European allies, saying, quote, the European Union is possibly as bad as China, just smaller. It's terrible what they are doing to us. So again, just notice that pattern that Trump continues to go after our allies, our European allies, Mexico and Canada. On Sunday, Axios reported on a leaked draft of a bill ordered by Trump in which the U.S. would effectively leave the World Trade Organization, and Trump would raise U.S. tariffs at will without congressional consent. Well, he's doing that anyway. I don't know why they need a bill for him to do that, but... Um Maria Bartiromo, he also in the interview with her started attacking Harley Davidson saying quote everyone who ever bought a Harley Davidson voted for Trump and they are very unhappy about it quote I think they are going to take a big hit. Trump continued his attack of Harley Davidson which again is reacting to his policies moving operations overseas because of his tariffs and the retaliation. On Tuesday Trump again attacked Harley Davidson, tweeting, quote, my administration is working with other motorci- motorcycle companies who want to move into the U.S. And he tweeted, Harley customers are not happy with their move. Sales are down 7% in 2017, which makes no sense because we're talking about 2018 and the impact of his move. But details like that never bothered Trump. Um, NPR reported Moog Music, the legendary synthesizer, designer, and manufacturer, said due to Trump's China tariffs, the company may need to lay off workers or move some, if not all, of its manufacturing overseas. Meanwhile, Um, bringing in foreign workers isn't a problem for one company, and that is Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort, which filed a request with the Department of Labor for 61 additional H-2B temporary visas for foreign service, uh, for foreign servers and cooks. Uh, On Friday, Trump officially launched a trade war with China, imposing the first duties on 34 billion of Chinese goods. So this is happening and real. Of course, China fired right back and accused the US of violating the World Trade Organization rules. Um, And Russia also said they would retaliate against the US uh, and join the European Union, China, India, and Canada in complaining to the World Trade Organization about Trump's actions with tariffs. So that was trade. Now let's talk about foreign policy we were talking about you know the media super bowl coverage and how ridiculous that was of the singapore summit with putin and guess what yeah you know, i'm give you a little preview they're going to do it again with a nato meeting and the meetings with putin um, you know i can already look into my crystal ball and tell you what's going to happen any you know hello geniuses it's the same thing again and again he's going to be you know acting out against our nato allies and he's going to be getting into this one-on-one meeting with Putin, um, coming out saying all sorts of things which are false uh, and probably giving up, in my opinion, sanctions against Putin. And there's possibly even language this week about him giving um, backing Putin's annexation of Crimea. So um, getting back to North Korea and what we reported last week that despite Trump coming out of that meeting with Kim Jong-un Um, and getting the celebrity status from the media for that summit that last week, NBC News had reported that North Korea is actually building up their nuclear arsenal, not tearing it down. Um, Pompeo, as a result of that, went to North Korea for a third meeting. He met with Kim Jong-chol in North Korea, hoping to flesh out specifics following the evidence again that North Korea continues to build up their nuclear program, despite assurances that Trump said he got. Who knows? On Saturday, AP reported that North Korean officials called the visit by Pompeo, quote, regrettable, and accused Washington of making, quote, gangster-like demands to pressure North Korea into abandoning its nuclear weapons. A statement from the North Korea spokesperson said, quote, we had expected the U.S. side would offer constructive measures that would help build trust, adding, but those hopes were naive and foolish. So Trump totally got played by Kim Jong-un um, and made no real progress, something that really should concern us as Trump heads off this week, this next coming week, um, start to NATO and his visit for the U.K which this is fun. Protesters um, across London are planning to protest Trump's visit, including a giant Trump baby balloon that will be flown close to the UK parliament. Over 10,000 people signed a petition in support of the balloon. On Wednesday, donning a sombrero, Sheffield Lord Mayor Magid announced in solidarity with Mexico, Trump will be banned from his city just outside London. And he he said, I quote, further declared that July 13th to be Mexico Solidarity Day. So those bits of news were hitting and knowing how thin-skinned Trump was, I joked in a tweet, I bet you 10 bucks he doesn't go to London. And sure enough, um, it was announced on Thursday that Trump will be largely staying away from London during his visit to the UK. More not normal, the Heritage Foundation on Thursday tweeted a list of things to to remember, countering Trump before his trip to Europe, including, quote, Russia is the aggressor, and, quote, Crimea belongs to Ukraine, and Putin cannot be trusted. So you start to see conservatives, well, not many, unfortunately, not elected conservatives, but the Heritage Foundation pushing back against Trump. On Friday, the Washington Post reported allies are worried that similar to the week of G7, Trump will blow up the NATO summit and then offer concessions to another autocrat, NATO adversary Russia. I bet you 10 bucks they're right. At his rally in Montana this week, which we talked about, Trump had railed against NATO, saying, quote, you got to start paying your bills and, quote, they kill us on trade. While in the same speech, he defended Putin, calling him, quote, fine. Washington Post also reported that Trump gave out his personal cell phone number to a handful of foreign leaders shortly after taking office, and his White House is not informed of his calls, nor is there a typical public readout. Aides have urged Trump to route all conversations with foreign leaders through the Situation Room as required under federal records law but Trump refuses. In conversations with Trudeau, May, and Merkel, Trump is assertive, brash, and even bullying. But with Putin, Trump takes a more conciliatory approach, often treating the Russian leader as a confidant. White House experts are concerned that Putin will have an upper hand in this meeting. And notice that Putin has been placating Trump and playing into him this week saying things like fake news and that the U.S. foreign policy establishment is the deep state conspiring against them. So you can sort of see Putin's KGB experience working well on his asset, Trump. But just notice in these stories and trade on foreign policy, one more that I'll add that came out later in the week, that Trump wanted to invade Venezuela, in 2017 he mentioned it several times in front of Tillerson who was then secretary of state and McMaster and McMaster's and others were able to talk him out of it but just again this man in his mind and by his actions is controlling everything and making all the decisions in our country and the republican party is certainly not pushing back on him they're going to russia and again using the word conciliatory uh, after russia had interfered in our election. So all these things are important. Now I wanna talk about people resisting. The good news of all this, you know, Trump talks about anarchy, but what what is happening is, is civic action. We talked about last week, the big rallies, including one on Sunday, that the, as the numbers came in, there were rallies as big as 70,000 in Los Angeles for immigrants. Uh, you know, in terms of pro-immigration, um, hundreds of thousands of people around the country had participated. Those actions continued during this week. On Tuesday, seventy-five protesters blocked the entrance of an ICE building in Philadelphia, refusing to allow anyone to enter or leave. Nearly thirty were arrested after a clash with police. And guess what? What they went back the next day on July fourth, um, and this was beautiful to watch. Uh, A Staten Island woman, African-American Staten Island woman, Therese Okamu climbed the Statue of Liberty in protest of Trump's immigration policy of separating families. Police closed down and evacuated the statue. She was part of 40 Rise and Resist protesters who earlier had hung a banner also on the Statue of Liberty calling for the abolishment of ICE. Um, And then this is other impact of people speaking out. In an op-ed, Alan Dershowitz said he was being, quote, shunned on Arthur's Vineyard for defending Trump. Yeah, this is the world's smallest violin playing your song, Alan. Poor thing. On Thursday, actor and Trump supporter James Wood revealed his agent had dropped him in a message saying, quote, it's the 4th of July and I'm feeling patriotic. I don't want to represent you anymore. I love that. And Wood is stupid enough to post that on Twitter. So we all had some fun with that on Thursday. Uh, And then this other protest that went viral. On Monday, a mother carrying her toddler confronted Scott Pruitt at a D.C. restaurant and asked him to resign before scandal pushed him out, saying her son loves animals, breathing clean air and drinking clean water. In the beginning part of the week, there were more stories coming out about things that Pruitt had done, whistleblowers, telling more information. And then finally this week, on Thursday, Pruitt resigned. The Washington Post reported the White House informed Pruitt that he had to submit his resignation. Trump tweeted shortly after that Pruitt did an outstanding job and I will always be thankful to him. In his resignation letter, which was a bizarre resignation letter, Pruitt wrote it had been a, quote, blessing to serve in the Trump regime and undertake their transformative work. But on the way out, of course, he was going to screw us on his way out. In his final hours at the EPA, Pruitt granted a a loophole allowing a major increase in the manufacture of older diesel freight trucks, which produce as much as 55 times the air pollution as newer trucks. The newer technology reduced emissions of nitrogen oxide, which are blamed for asthma, lung cancer, and other ailments. The move that he made was opposed by um, a strange group in in some ways, because it's so broad, opposed by environmentalists, public health advocates, industry players, and even truck manufacturers. So that was his goodbye kiss on the way out. Uh, And as much as people are rejoicing on Pruitt, I kind of have a, a, you know, and I'm a you know, sort of ambivalent about him going because the next guy that's in placing him, Andrew Wheeler, is a former co-lobbyist who shares Pruitt's zeal for undoing environmental regulations. But unlike Pruitt, Wheeler is a Washington insider who has spent years effectively navigating the rules. Pruitt was definitely corrupt, but he was also fairly incompetent. I have to say, um, this is where I part with people. I'm actually more concerned about this Wheeler guy coming in and being more efficient at undoing regulations that are what's left um, of protecting our environment. I wanted to close out with some odds and ends that also caught my attention this week and are worth knowing. Um, One is that um, on Tuesday, according to documents obtained by Bloomberg, the Trump regime is temporarily letting ZTE, remember the Chinese company, resume some business activities while the U.S. weighs ending a seven-year ban on the company. So Trump is doing that. This is something widely opposed by people uh, in his own party in the House and Senate. These sanctions were unanimously unanimously implemented against CTE. So keep an eye on that story. That kind of got very little attention. Um, Another interesting story, NBC News reported that that they all are cashing in that Melania Trump, um, it was revealed in financial disclosure forms filed by Trump, Melania is earning between $100,000 and $1 million last year. For Getty images of her in a series that was shot between 2010 and 2016. At least a dozen news agencies paid to use the photos, which included a requirement that the photos only be used in positive coverage. Interesting. Um, and again, going back to the theme of the mistreatment of people in our country who are. Brown and Black, CNN reported that based on a mortality database, which they um, were able to procure out of Puerto Rico, 26 Puerto Ricans died from leptospirosis in the six months following Hurricane Maria. Um, that is a higher number than we previously knew, and things continue as we prepare for the next hurricane season. To be, work is still unfinished in Puerto Rico, and there's been no accountability. And continuing the pattern, each week there are new crises, and each week Trump is throwing a new shiny coin, and we're forgetting about all the things that have happened, and the lack of accountability of what's happened in Puerto Rico. So the importance of the list, the importance of keeping up and staying informed. So we'll leave you with that. Um, And we look forward to hearing from you. And again, thank you so much for rating this show and for telling your friends about it. Last week, as the podcast hit, my son texted me to say, hey, mom, you're ahead of Alex Jones. This show hit number 88 last week um, of most popular podcasts. So please continue to share with your friends and rate it if you're on Apple podcast or on Google. Thanks again for joining.